Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. This morning we're concluding the series of Nehemiah, the wall-building odyssey of Nehemiah. And some of you are probably saying, wait a minute, there are 13 chapters and we're just on chapter 12. Well, that's true. But the odyssey of building the wall that has been going on since chapter 1 for the last 12 chapters has occurred over a period of around 12 years. And now we come to the conclusion of that event, that adventure. And as they finish that up, they will close it up and wrap it up with a tremendous celebration. That's one of the reasons we're celebrating here today. They themselves are going to show us some insights about what it really means to celebrate with God. Now you say, well, what about chapter 13? Well, chapter 13, as we'll find out next week, occurs a number of years later. And since this summer has been a sequel of movies, this is in a sense, chapter 13 will be Son of Nehemiah, or Nehemiah 2, or the return of Nehemiah, or whatever you want to call it. Probably the best I came up with was the revenge of Nehemiah. (laughs) And you think I'm kidding, but wait till we get to next week, and Bill unfolds that, and you'll see that that's more accurate than uh, just humor. But this morning, I want to finish the original story, the part one, so to speak, and so we're going to be looking at chapter 12. You know, as I have thought about, since we're wrapping it up, this book, and it's been a special book, what I think has impressed me the most about this this great description of a leader coming to revive a people, what probably has impacted me the most is the sequence of events that have occurred. And they've occurred in a very logical fashion. And what they've done is they have basically spelled out in a kind of an outline form, how you rebuild a nation. But at the same time, as I was thinking about it, this also can be taken from kind of a national outline of restoration down to a very personal outline of restoration. Because the same sequence of events that follow for this nation also follow for you and me. In this book is an outline of celebration, of how you can get there. And yet, in many ways, it requires you and me to follow the same blueprint for rebuilding our lives as they followed for rebuilding their nation. Now, in a great host of people like this, there are always those of us who come in at different points. And we may be at different points in this process, but certainly there are those who are here who are facing what they think is maybe an insurmountable problem in their life. Maybe they are in the rubble of a personal crisis of some kind. And in a church like this, we have that occurring all the time. Uh, Maybe there is the ruin of a broken marriage or a troubled marriage and you're struggling in that marriage and you're wanting to know how how can you address this issue that's in your life. Maybe it's just a financial crisis of some kind, a catastrophe that's come into your family. 
at some point, or whatever it may be. But whatever the heartache might be, the outline of Nehemiah offers a way in kind of a simplistic form, but we're simple people, to restore that which has been destroyed. For instance, and this is not on your outline, but the first seven chapters, if you'll remember, if I could summarize that in, in a simple principle, it would be this, that Nehemiah returned Israel to face her problem. You know, facing your problem, just turning around and facing it, in many cases for people, as I've watched them heal up, is half the struggle. Just addressing the problem. Now certainly these people had a major problem. I mean, the book began with these people scattered all over the world. Their nation was in ruin. Their capital city was completely torn down. So much so that the people had basically collapsed back into passivity. They just thought, what's the use? They lost hope. It was easy to excuse themselves from their responsibility of being the people of God who are called by His name, delivered from dark and delivered from shame. They were the people of God. That was their responsibility. They were not like everyone else, but they sure wanted to be like everyone else because the way back looked awfully hard. The problem looked insurmountable. They lacked money, if you remember. They uh, faced danger. And then they faced the fact that there were no guarantees to all their efforts. They could throw all their time and all their energy and all their activity and finances into this abyss of rebuilding their country. And yet there were no guarantees that it would work. And they had a foreign power who oppressed them. And yet they were the people of God. Boy, it would have been so easy just to blend in with everybody else. And that's what they had done for a number of years. But you remember, Nehemiah came and he called them to return, to turn around and to face up to their calling and to face their problem as big as it was. Now you know, that's exactly how I have felt at times. Maybe you are feeling today, even as you come in here before we look at this celebration but you know, you can find a thousand excuses and they will all seem legitimate to not facing the problem that's in your life. It can look too big. The way back can seem too hard and it will take too long. And then after all that, even as you thought that through and weighed the consequences, there's still no guarantees. Right? And you think, then why try? So we just begin to blend in, so to speak. We begin to run from our problem. And a lot of Americans today run from their problems rather than deal with their problems. We can hide them. We can just try to cover them up and kind of lower ourselves to another plane of existence which is not satisfying to us. But we'll live there and we'll carry on as if things are okay. We'll kind of, if we really admit it, we'll just exist for a while, but things get awfully boring there. And after a while, you feel the need to kind of spice up your life. I mean, it is kind of boring. So you spice it up and you dabble with those things that you know are wrong. But you reason to yourself, but my life is so bland. My marriage is so bad. My job is so hard. 
I lack so much. There's got to be a little fun in life. And so you excuse yourself to those things because you've given up hope in the bondage that you feel like you're in. The problem's just too big. What Nehemiah says is, no, it isn't. There is a place to return. There's an outline to follow to get back. And the first step in that outline is that you have to return and face your problem. You can't be like the Jews who just farmed at night around the broken walls of Jerusalem and fooled around. But you've got to face up to your problem. And when you do that, that's half the battle. So return is one of the key statements of the book of Nehemiah. A second step, so to speak, would be what we saw in chapter 8. It was in the word revelation. Remember, the people came to a place where for the first time since their captivity, they truly listened to what God's Word had to say. And they realized how far they were from that. Did you know that there are times that people can attend church week after week and month after month, and though by everyone's consent, this is the greatest book that has been ever written, the greatest piece of literature, not to mention the greatest piece of spiritual advice, that most people are ignorant of its contents. They maybe even attend a church like this where the emphasis is on teaching the Scripture, and yet, unfortunately, they will allow events to come and knock them to their knees before they finally realize that this book has a better way than the way they've chosen to live. These people gave attention after a while. They saw that what they had done for their lives had not worked, so they began to seriously think about the revelation. They just didn't listen to it. They mourned over how far they were from it, and they then moved to step three, which was in chapter 10. That is, they resolved to change things. And not only did they do that, but they put their resolve in writing, and they called others to give them accountability because they were serious about changing their way of life, of really facing up to who they were, the problems that they had, and that began to start everything rolling. Just returning and working on the situation, listening to the revelation, resolving to be different at a higher level, it all begins to snowball, and it ends in this climactic celebration in Nehemiah chapter 12. I mean... They had a party. And they were excited. And they could not believe what God had done for them and what new level of life they were now on because they had doubted it even during those 12 years that they sacrificed for it. And yet we come to chapter 12 and what is scattered across the pages or the page of this chapter are the words joy, celebration, Deep satisfaction. And isn't that what you want for your own life? I believe that that's what most people hunger for. But you can't get that kind of true celebration in a cheap thrill. You can't get deep satisfaction in a momentary lust. It just doesn't work that way in life. We revere and we honor those who sacrifice their lives for moments of great achievement, when will we understand that it's exactly the same way in the kingdom of God? They understood that they had to move just from believing in God to persevering with God 
for not buckling under when the pressure was on, with staying in there again and again, day after day, but they found when they came to this chapter and this moment that all the effort and energy and time and sacrifice was worth it on a much higher plane of living that very few people ever even touch into. They were satisfied with life. That's what this chapter is all about. And I believe that's exactly what should be true of you and me. The Christian life properly lived is not without pain and sacrifice and toil. But it is not all those things. It's not all duty. Peppered throughout our life should be these moments of celebration and joy and satisfaction. Because Jesus promised that to us. He said, I have, not come, that you, I have come that you might have life and that you might have that life abundantly. And I see in that word, celebration. So now let's look at chapter 12. And we'll use that as an introduction and we'll begin to kind of peruse through those first 26 verses. And you'll see I have the same problem as Bill. He had the white pages. I get the yellow pages this week. And if there are a list of names, and those names mean very little to you. And you may be asking, well, what significance is there in a list of names if we're going to talk about celebration? Now, the celebration actually begins in verse 27. You'll notice that. But it's preceded by this list of ancients that we know very little about. Well, let me get you in touch a little bit about why those names are put there. And let me do it by asking you some questions. Let's say that you were going to celebrate the 4th of July. What would be a more meaningful celebration of the 4th of July for you? I mean, it would be deeply moving to celebrate it over in Pleasant Valley watching some fireworks go off on a hot summer's night or celebrating the 4th of July in Independence Hall in Philadelphia as someone read through the names as you observe of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence? What would be more moving to you? Or let me ask this question. Let's say it's Veterans Day. Would it be more exciting to celebrate? What would be more moving? To celebrate Veterans Day at the Benton County Courthouse or in front of a long black sheet of marble with 50,000 names on it in Washington, D.C. Which would move you more? You see, by appending these names before he gets to the celebration, by reviewing them for us, Nehemiah is tying the past to the present. He's making a connection between those two worlds to add depth to the meaning of the celebration. And certainly, when we think about the past, in reference to the, the present, we get to see that this celebration is bigger than just us right now. Now notice he starts with a name. And you might circle. I'll give you a few names to circle just for you to recall later. But notice he starts with the first name, Zerubbabel. Now who was he? Zerubbabel was a politician. He was a prince in Babylonia. 
And that's where the Israelites were held in captivity for 70 years. It was the courage of this man, the dedication of this man, Zerubbabel, to take the first step to lead the people out of captivity. And he worked all these devices to get there. But he had courage and sacrifice, and he moved the people out of Babylon and back to the land of Israel. He led the first colony back. He was the John Smith of this adventure. But not only did he do that, when he got there, even though the city walls weren't up, he rallied the people, they sacrificed their goods, their effort, their time and their energy, and they rebuilt the temple before they even had walls to protect it. He led them in that and made worship central to the people. Now the reason I say that is because when you get to the end of this chapter and Nehemiah's glory when he gets to verse 47, he says, and so all Israel in the days, and look, look, he adds who? Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. He connects those two times. He said there was glory there and they live for the same principles that we live for and we're carrying on that tradition and that gives our celebration even higher meaning because our celebration goes beyond ourselves and our time. You know, that's exactly what happens in a celebration. You know, when you're at the 4th of July, when you call on George Washington's name, it says to you as you celebrate the 4th, you know, this is not just something that we have made up. This is something that has been carried on by other generations and they too thought what we are living for and sacrificing for is important. They gave themselves to it. It must be important. They worked hard for it. And certainly George Washington sacrificed more than you and I did. Those pilgrims who hit Jamestown in 1607, 500 of them, you know, certainly we want to remember them when we're celebrating our nation's birth because there were 500 of them one winter, but by next summer, there was only 50. It cost them something. And when we think about it, it adds meaning to our celebration because we say we don't want to lose what they gave so dearly for. We want to continue it. And what they died for, we want to live for to keep it going because it's bigger than us. That's why he adds those names here at the beginning. The past counts. And let me tell you something. If you are living only for you in a block of time and space of 70 years, you live for nothing. If you aren't connected to the past, if you aren't carrying something valuable over so that sons and daughters will look back to you now and say, you did something for me and it's worth me doing that, then you live for nothing. You live only for yourself. And what a miserable way to live. That's why he includes these names. These are spiritual heroes to these people. And they're connected to them, not by blood, but by purpose, by passion, by direction. There are other names here too, and they count as well. And I'm not going to read those names because it would take us too long. But let me just make this point. These names are included, as they are in several places of the Bible, along with dates and kings and kingdoms and all that thing, for a purpose. And that purpose is so that the Bible can scream out to us that this book is not a fairy tale book. It's not a story. It is history. Now there are many, many people who don't believe that because they've given not a shred of time to explore it. 
But this book is history. Most scholars who know nothing about the Bible would read these names and say, well, they just probably, Nehemiah just put these in here to give a, make the story more elaborate. No, these are real people in real time and space. This is not mythical as such. Now, I know that there are a lot of religions who have all kinds of myths, the Greek mythologies. You have all kinds of men in history who have claimed that God spoke to them without substantiation, without documentation. Their words and their messages are of dubious origin, but not the Bible. These men are real in real time and real space. Now let me just have you circle a few. We could do a lot of them, but let me give you a few for instance. For instance, in verse 23, there is the chief priest listed there. His name is Johanan. He's the son of Eliashib, who was at present the high priest of Israel in the time of Nehemiah. Johanan would be a high priest. He was a high priest. The Bible tells us that. Well, it's interesting that a number of years ago, they found some papyri down in Egypt. They call it the Elephantine papyri. It's an Aramaic writing, and basically what it is is just some legal and business documents between peoples. As they began to read through those documents, it talked about this high priest in Israel in 410 B.C., the same time as what we're reading here, whose name was Johanan. And it mentions that Johanan was a high priest in the time of Darius the second. Now, by the way, Darius is also mentioned in the very verse before verse 23, verse 22. He's called Darius the Persian as opposed to Darius the Mede, who was Darius the first. This is Darius the second. But this was a real person. And we have documents from secular histories, although this is history, that tell us that person was a real live individual. Now you may not have heard the name of Eber. That doesn't probably cause you to smile or rejoice. But Eber was found in a list just like the list here in chapter 12 in the book of Genesis. Genesis 11.16 by the way. He is listed there though scholars for years said only figuratively, mythologically, he's listed there as the great, 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 great grandfather of Abraham. And everybody said, well, they just stuck those things in to give the story some reality. But it's just a story. That is, until in 1976, some archaeologists began to uncover this kingdom, this major city in northern Syria they call Ebla. It's now called the Ebla Empire. It was a group of Semitic-type people who inhabited that northern area for thousands of years ago. And as they went through, they found the city's library, and as they uncoded their, decoded their language, they found in there all kinds of references to a man, a powerful farmer named Eber, and his son, grandson later on named Abraham, and Jerusalem, and all kinds of things about the, the trade between those peoples. And in the Time Magazine article that reported that, one archaeologist said, we always considered these people mythical. The fundamentalists are going to have a field day with this. Well, I'm not planning to rub anybody's face in it. All I'm trying to say is, these are real people in real time and space, and the Bible keeps presenting itself as a history book as accurate 
as the writings of Plato or the Seneca, the philosopher, or Julius Caesar and his Gallic Wars or anything else. Also in these documents in Ebla, they found the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah was always thought to be just this tale, fairy tale about God, you know, somehow sending fire down from heaven. And of course, that any two-year-old would know that's just a story. And they always said that Sodom and Gomorrah never existed until Ebla, and then they found trading documents between Sodom and Gomorrah and the Ebla Empire. So we know it existed in history. Even Pontius Pilate, for many years, was considered to be a myth. Around the Jesus story. That is, until they dug up a massive amphitheater in Caesarea, just south of Lebanon. And in this great amphitheater where they used to put on Roman games to preserve their Roman culture as they lived in Palestine, there in the box seat, and it's a big box seat, and I've had the pleasure of standing there myself, was the name Pontius Pilate, governor. He had a 50-yard line seat. And by the way, there's one other name I'll just mention off the top of my head. If you look in verse 11, it mentions another high priest by the name of Jadua. And he's only important because of another historical event. Not him, but one of his descendants 300 years later. Another high priest named Jadua, who when Alexander the Great came to destroy Jerusalem and brought his forces against it. And he had been destroying city after city. Jadua, who was a descendant of this Jadua, as recorded by the historian Josephus, and we have those writings and you can read it for yourself. As, as uh, Alexander the Great put his armies out in front and was about to dis- attack the city, he marched out with the scrolls of Daniel. Now, you remember Daniel's a prophetic book. And Alexander met him and he showed Alexander in Daniel chapter 6 the prophecies made about Alexander the Great 300 years before that moment. And Alexander the Great was so stunned by the supernaturalness of this document that he spared the city and went and destroyed all the cities in Egypt. That's fact. That's history. Now why don't we hear more about that? Because no one wants you to know. This book is real. These are real people in real time and real space. So there's a historical perspective. There's also more of a personal eternal perspective as I just look at these names. You know, I am terrible, as some of you know, about remembering names. And I hate that. And I seem to be getting worse, it seems. The other night I was in my family room and I said, would you turn off the TV, son? (laughs) <laughs> need to carry a card right with me, I think. You know, it's just so easy to forget a name to me. When I was in Arlington National Cemetery, I went and stood as they were about to have the changing of the guard, and I stood back behind that ceremony where there is the remnant of the battleship Maine. Remember the Maine? Some of you are going, No. The main was a battleship in Havana Harbor that was blown up that started the Spanish-American War. And around that masthead, that's all that's left, are the names of all the sailors and their position 
that died when that ship sunk. And they were placed there, I'm sure, by an effort of parents, moms and dads who wanted their sons to be remembered. But you don't remember them, do you? And when I look at these names, at least for a time, Nehemiah wrote these names because he wanted these men to be remembered, but you don't remember them, do you? And I thought to myself, as I looked over this list, I don't know you. I don't know how you lived. I don't know really who you were. I don't know how you were respected. And quite frankly, two weeks from now, I'll probably forget about you altogether. And I remembered, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. We forget, don't we? We build upon one another's rubble. And we're just no names. That seems awfully defeating, except for the fact that God knows your name. God never forgets your name or your deeds. What a beautiful expression is found in Isaiah 49.16 when it says, Behold, I have inscribed your name on the palms of my hand. Have you ever done that so as not to forget something? You're going to the grocery store and you put milk. You put it right there so as you're about to leave, you'll be sure you got it. Now that's just an expression there, but it shows us how intensely God is interested in knowing you and me Personally. And you know, there will come a day in eternity when maybe others won't know us, at least for a while. But Jesus Christ will be walking through that throng of people and when He looks over and He sees you, He'll smile with a knowing smile. And He'll say, Hi Jim. And you will know that you are known. The only thing God will forget about you according to Hebrews 8 is your sin. That's the only thing. And who knows, as I look at these names too, I thought maybe 500,000 light years from now in the days of eternity, so to speak, one of your good friends might be Ido or a Hattush. You might run around with Nehemiah even. Who knows? But that's what eternity is all about. And all Nehemiah is trying to do is saying, what they did will count. What we're doing is like what they're doing and carrying it on, and it counts too. And praise the Lord, we won't be forgotten. Well, let's look at the celebration itself. It starts in verse 27. I'm just going to read through a few of the verses and skip through it, but it'll tie the story together. It says in verse 27, Now, now that we have our sense of history, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals. You could hear the hollering. They were blowing it out in satisfaction. That's what it's telling us here. Now when I read that, I can't help but think about the person who recently said, do Christians have fun? I mean, that's, that was a good question. And quite frankly, sometimes we can get so focused on what's wrong with our world and what's, where our world is going and have such a long look on our face that we would depress even Norman Vincent Peale. You know that? And if we go too long with what's wrong, we can even sour about life. And you know some Christians who've done that. It's like the story I heard of the, 
the young girl who she saw a mule for the very first time and she got right up in the mule's face. And she said, I don't know what you are, but you must be a Christian because you look just like my Uncle Bill. <laughs> That's sour, isn't it? There are things wrong with our world, but let me tell you, there are also some things right with it. And God has prescribed celebration as part of the Christian life to keep reminding us of what's right. And so we're not talking about them just having a party. We're talking about them celebrating the accomplishment of something that was spiritually significant. Have you ever been a part of something like that? Where you were really a part? Some of you will remember when we moved into this facility for the first time. And the very first song was about to be sung. And for a number of us, in a moment's time, flashed through our minds, we remember what it was like to be up at 5 o'clock in the morning setting up 300 chairs, putting out a learning center that we had to take down until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. We know the price we paid. We know what it felt like to be sitting in a gym where I was up there and, you, and I was totally soaked through because I was sweating so much because it was 100 degrees in there. And where we were huddled together with blankets around us in the winter just to conduct a worship service. Some of you remember that. Some of you remember when we started trying some new things and we went to small groups and nobody knew what a small group was. We began to take people on foreign trips and people said, what are we doing? That's dangerous. When you were in a theater where everything was dark as night and you could smell popcorn at 12 o'clock while the preaching was going on. And sometimes the feature would go on. <laughs> you know what that was like. And yet we persevered. We kept going. And we knew the kind of ministry that had taken place on a much more practical, realistic level where we really became transparent with each other. And in the first song, there were people peppered throughout the audience who weren't just singing, they were crying with joy, with satisfaction that very few people ever understand. And when we had our 10-year anniversary and we brought back all those old memories and hooked a phone here and called our friends who had been a part of this church all over the country. The new churches that we've started at great effort and tremendous sacrifice and cost to this body. And yet we sang and we made fun of one another and we laughed and Jane Ann Smith read that letter. Some of you remember that letter. I wish I could read it now. And we cried because we had been part of something spiritually significant that wasn't tied to us, but went back to yesterday and the day before and the day before until we're all the way back with a man in sandals who is called the greatest man who ever lived. Is it worth it? You bet it is. God wants His people to celebrate. But let me tell you who can celebrate. I think what's obvious, there's three points on your outline. I only want to give you two. That's better. The most obvious is those who can celebrate or those who take part. You might just jot that down. Those who actually take part. I've got an interesting opportunity for myself this October. In October, Arkansas plays Texas in Fayetteville. And that game is the 20th anniversary of a game that I was in 20 years ago in 1969 that was played for the national championship in Fayetteville. Some of you remember that. President Nixon flew in, God bless him, to give the national championship trophy to the winning team. And as I reviewed that film a few months back, I didn't realize that who sat next to him, who accompanied him, 
him was the congressman for Texas, George Bush, but he was sitting next to Nixon. And Billy Graham came in to give the, the prayer before the game. And Glenn Campbell sang the national anthem. And there was no game in all the United States except that game. And it was college football's 100th anniversary. They call it one of the greatest games ever played. Well, we're going to have a celebration about that. But you know what? I'm not going to celebrate like a lot of people are. And the reason for that is because during that year, as I got hurt and played less and less, when it came to that game, I didn't play. I was there. I was a part of the team. I was involved in all the hoopla. But I watched. I didn't take part. And so, we'll get up there and we'll slap each other on the back and probably somebody will show the film of the game in its complete form and guys will laugh and poke each other and I'll have a good time too. But I won't celebrate like they will. You know why? Because I didn't take part. Some of you have watched us celebrate. And I can't think of anything worse than to be a part of a celebration and not be a part of it. To not have given like others give. To not have sacrificed as others have sacrificed. To not have laughed with the deep laugh that others laugh with. Because there's joy here. But that joy comes only to those who take part. Then there's a second point there, and it's found in verse 30. Notice that the priests and the Levites purify not only themselves, but the people. They went through a purification process to ensure that their hearts were right before God when they took place, took part in the celebration. Now the reason I mention that is because in a celebration of spiritual things, if your heart isn't right, it takes the heart out of the celebration, doesn't it? If you're in here celebrating the goodness of God when you've got sin on your mind, you can't really celebrate, can you? That is exactly why in so many churches today, the sense within that event that's called a worship celebration by most, it really feels more like a worship funeral. And you know why? It's because what is being said and what is being done are two different things. And it drains, it lances the joy out of any celebration. You cannot celebrate, even if you took part. If in your heart, while the celebration is going on, you're entertaining or involved in a sinful course of action. You may call yourself a Christian. You may even look like a Christian on the surface. But you won't feel like a Christian as God intended you to feel. Because there's no purity. Those are the two requirements for really having fun. Now concerning the celebration itself, if you'll notice they had two choirs and they walked around the city. One from one direction with... Nehemiah the politician and the other from the other direction with Ezra the priest. It was kind of a 5th century separation of church and state. And they walked around these walls and they looked at all the things that were going on. They looked at the finished wall. They looked at the temple and all that was going to go on in it. They looked at the people moving back into the city. And all of a sudden it dawned on them, look what God has done for us. You see, they didn't sing until after that walking. But that walking stoked the enthusiasm with which they would sing when they reached their final destination. You know, when I walk through our building, when I look at what's up on the missions board, when I see a picture of the step, and we put those pictures up, 
See a baptism with 300 people. Witness a one-to-one class with 400 here tonight. Those kind of things. You witness those and you just sit back in awe and you say, look what God is doing. It's incredible. That's what happened to these people. And boy, look what it says in verse 43. It says, and on that day they offered great sacrifices. They gave a lot. Because God had given them great joy. And it says, even the women and the children rejoice. And you're probably wondering, why does it say that? Didn't they take part naturally? Well, I'm just going to offer a possible interpretation. Have you ever gone to a solemn assembly? You know, maybe it's a wedding where everything's real quiet. Or whatever. And who are the most miserable people there? Is it not the women and the children? Those who have children. You know why? Because she's sitting there wanting to be a part of the celebration. Nothing wrong with being solemn at times. But she's having to take care of little Johnny, slapping his hand, pulling him back, saying to be quiet and trying to buy him off with some candy or gum. Then slipping him out if he gets too rowdy, but then she goes out embarrassed. One of the reasons I like to take my kids to Chili's is because it is so loud in there. They can go in there and I just look over there and smile. Have at it, kids. And I go to eat. And my wife relaxes. You know, I think that's what's taking place here. They, the singing, the symbols, the, the joy is so loud, heard from afar, that the women can just relax and take part and go, whatever you want to do, Junior, it's just going to blend in. You know, they were just having a good time. It was a true celebration. But let me add one other thing, and that is the new resolve this celebration brought. You know, when there's a celebration going on, and you see the fruit of your labor and the faith that God has honored, when you see all these things that they were seeing, it's interesting that in the midst of a celebration, as you say to yourself, this is the way it should have always been. This is, this is where God wanted us to begin with. Why couldn't we see that? But now we're here and we're rejoicing. And just about the time that's off your lips, you kind of say to yourself, boy, we can't let down now. Have you ever watched after the Super Bowl or the World Series and everybody's spraying themselves with champagne and they're talking about how what a great year it was? Invariably, the comment is going to be made in the midst of that celebration by either a coach or a player. Yeah, we're going to really have to get with it to do this again next year. You see, you saw your past, you're experiencing the glory of the presence, and you're saying, we don't want to lose this. We've got to decide what needs to take place in order to keep this rolling. And that's exactly what they did starting in verse 44. If you'll notice, they resolved themselves to some higher commitments. The first was this. It says, on that day, on the day of the celebration, Men were appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions, the material portions, required by the law for the priest and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priest and the Levites who served. See, they asked the question, what's going to keep us at this level? And one of the answers is in verse 44. They begin to see that they must, if they're going to repeat their championship, they must provide for themselves strong spiritual support. And that support came through 
a healthy, vibrant priesthood of Levites and priests, they began to see that they had to keep these men in service and supported financially or else they would lose or compromise in the future what they had had right now. You know, they learned a principle, and it's a principle we need to keep hearing, and that's this. You get what you give to. You get it. The, the secular expression is you get what you pay for. But you're going to get what you give to. One of the reasons we celebrated at the end of 10 years, and it was a great celebration, is we have had strong spiritual support, both from staff and from lay leaders. And you have given generously to do that. You really have. And we rejoiced over that because the support has been a very much of an equipping emphasis, even as Sandy mentioned earlier. And it's been personal. But you know what? Our church just keeps growing. That's why we have two women's fellowships because we can't get everybody in there anymore. Our facility can't hold it. We have needs in junior and senior high where we can't even get the kids in there. There's so many kids and the space to pupil ratio is way out of line. And you look at all that and you say, but we've enjoyed such personalness and attention and equipping. Yeah, we have. But will we go on? That's the question. You know, one of the reasons we've talked about these seasons of life pastors adding more pastoral staff to come in is not because we want more staff. It's because we want to maintain that which has carried us to where we are. And that is an equipping emphasis and having our own, quote, priests and Levites who can give personal attention to people. But you know what? It's going to cost us. Just like these people. To do that, to get there, it will cost us. It's just an honest confession. It's not a mercenary plea for anything. It will cost us. And if we don't respond in time, it will cost us in another way. Just like it would have cost these people for them to go on. So that was one resolve, that of sharing. The second resolve is that of separation. And that starts in chapter 13. Notice it says, on that day, the day of celebration, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in the revelation that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. These people had corrupted Israel's spirituality. And if you remember back in chapter 10, they pledged in writing not to give their sons or daughters to these foreign peoples because of spiritual corruption. But now as they read the law of Moses, they also find that they shouldn't be living with these people. They shouldn't have them in Jerusalem living next door to them because they have a history, especially the Ammonites and Moabites, of pulling Israel down. So what did they do? Look at verse 3. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. They didn't do that to be mean. They did that to stay pure. Now I want to add one disclaimer here, and it's this. The foreigners were rejected, but that is not because God did not love those foreigners. He just wanted to protect Israel to be a light to the world. But if a foreigner would put off his or her foreign gods and accept the God of Israel, then that person would be received into the company of Israel. And you know how I know that? Because in your Old Testament, you have the book of Ruth. And you know who Ruth was? She was a Moabitess. But she took God, Israel's God as her God, and she was accepted into the believing community. 
but unconverted foreigners must not be allowed. So in the midst of this celebration, they come to the resolve, higher resolve of sharing and of separation to keep them from letting themselves down in the future. And the principle is this, is spiritual celebrations are never by accident. A spiritual celebration of the kind we could enjoy here from time to time is always purposefully planned and accounted for. Now I'm going to close the book, but I want to leave you with two questions that I think can be personal from this that you can take with you. The first question at the bottom of your outlines is this. Do you have any spiritual heroes? Spiritual heroes. Men or women that link your life to the effort to efforts greater than just what you're doing. To the past and to the future. You know, when I was in seminary, that happened to me. Just like with Nehemiah. Because his hero was Zerubbabel. He's saying, Zerubbabel did this. He was a leader, a politician. He had courage and sacrifice. And you know, I can feel what he felt and I can glory in what he gloried in because I'm like him. When I was in seminary, I picked up a book one day and read this book and I said, I like this guy. And years later, I went to his church. I sat under his teaching. I went to seminars that he spoke at. I saw the fruit of his ministry. The fact that he liked to share the pulpit. He liked to serve people. He wanted a church of true integrity. He didn't want a lot of flash and that kind of thing in which he was trying to build his own personal kingdom. But he was a truly humble man. His name was Ray Stedman. He doesn't know me from Adam. If I called him today, you wouldn't know who I am. But he's one of my spiritual heroes. And I wanted to be like him. And I wanted to pastor a church like his. And we have. Now some of you are going to probably say like Lloyd Benson said to Quayle, I know Ray Stedman and you're no Ray Stedman. <laughs> and I admit that. But it's good to be kind of like Ray Stedman. <laughs> you know? And to feel like what I am carrying on here has historical roots of reality back there. And as young men are in this church, and some who've left us and gone out and started other churches, even around our city, to know that it's going on there gives me a sense of something much greater than myself and worthy of the kingdom. Do you have a spiritual hero? Somebody that you would like to be like. You may not ever be all that he is. Might be more than she is. But do you have somebody that you really can model yourself after? That is so important. And then secondly, have you participated in any spiritual celebrations with a group that did something spiritually significant? Yes, it's going to cost you to get involved. And yes, people may not know what you've done. They're not going to honor you. And they'll forget your name. And years from now, when you're dead and gone, they'll pass by this church and they'll never think that you were a part of putting it up. But it might not be in the newspaper, but it is in the book of life. And there is a God who remembers it. And there will come a day, and I promise you this, because if Jesus didn't go to prepare a place for us, He would have not have told us that. He told us because it was true. And there will come a day when we're standing wondering, did I count? And we're not there just smelling of smoke. We're there with deeds done rightly in this body. And in the throng of people, as Jesus moves through this in His kingdom, 
However that's going to look. When He looks across and your eyes meet His eyes, there'll be a twinkle there. And He'll smile at you. And He'll say something that you'll never forget of ultimate celebration. With a knowing look, He'll say, Nice job, Carla. Good job. And that will mean everything for all time. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank You for this dramatic conclusion to part one. Oh, had they only gone on in the sequel. But we thank You, Lord, for an outline that we can live our lives by. It seems simple, but it's profound. May we be moved to take seriously Your Word to face our problems. May we realize that at the end is not the bitter taste of guilt, but the sweet taste of satisfaction. Move us a step further in that direction today. And Lord, though our accomplishments and our successes may not be enjoyed publicly, what a thrill it is to open the door, to step outside, to feel clean, to feel pure, to feel right, and to know You will not be forgotten. We pray that You would lead us in the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.